0: Okay. Well, to do this, I have to go against my natural inclinations, right? I, I, I'm an expositor by nature. I want to just root myself in one text and preach that text. But to handle this topic this morning, uh, I can't do that. We've got to look more breadth, and so you'll have to bear with me there. I think that if you assess our culture, if you take a deep look at the mindset, the sentiment that, that carries about in, in, in American Christianity and Americans in general is one of rejecting authority. That seems to be the sentiment of the day. I mean, just look at the riots that we see happening in Baltimore and Ferguson throughout the nation. Think about all of the public disdain and criticism that we see of civic leaders in social media. Think about just in your workplace, this... Attitude that employees have to kind of push back and resist uh, faithfully serving their employers. Or think about in your homes how our children have a tendency to dishonor or reject the authority of their parents. Now, some of this sentiment is understandable. I mean, when people who are placed in authority are untrustworthy or when they abuse their power, it is good and it is right to pursue accountability and at times even to revolts. I mean, let's not forget that our country uh, was begun as a result of our forefathers declaring independence against an unfair, tyrannical form of government. They could no longer in good conscience suffer injury at the hands of a distant and unconcerned dictator. And so knowing what this would cost them, the declaring independence would lead to war, not just out on some distant battlefield, but in their own land, among their own homes. With reluctancy, they penned these words, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer when evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object, rule, evinces, it shows, it reveals a design to reduce the people being governed under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such governments and to provide new guards for their future security. No one writes like that anymore. Now I wonder... What our forefathers would think if they saw the way that our culture has begun to interpret these statements. We've taken hold of the idea of independence and rebelling against the abuses of power. We are constantly striving to provide ourselves with new guards for our own future security. But we so often miss the concepts of patience, long-suffering, prudence, lawfulness, order, the greater good, not of myself, but of a people and nation, and the need for government. In our efforts to gain independence for ourselves or to find security for ourselves, we throw those things aside. In our our day that is marked by expediency, by consumerism, by selfishness, by radical individualism, we have found that it is far easier to distrust, to criticize, and to reject any form of authority than it is for us to live faithfully according to God's design. And in our efforts to find our own security, we inadvertently throw off the kingdom of God for the kingdom of self. I can't trust God's design for my good. I can't trust those whom the Lord has placed in authority over me. And so I will reject it. I will seek it for myself. I will rule I will govern, I will provide for my own needs, I will provide for my own security. And those same sentiments have made their way into the church. And it has led to some really, really unhealthy patterns. Either towards carelessness, right? Because I'm so accustomed to self-involvement, I'm so just enraptured by my own sense of self that I give no thought to God's intention or purposes for the way the church ought to be governed. I ignore it completely because I'm so consumed with self. Or or here's another option. Either we deserve, uh, we desire to have all of the say or maybe we're the opposite extreme. We desire to have none of the st- say. And so what we do is we gravitate towards unbiblical or illegitimate forms of church government because we want to make all of the decisions or we want to make none of the decisions. Or perhaps what is most obvious, we reject God's authority structure for the church because we want to rule ourselves. And we think that we can go through life just fine on our own, just me and Jesus. But friends, what we end up doing is we miss out on the blessing. That God designed the church to be as we persevere together within God's structure of authority, which is for our good. Friends, this is one of the reasons why we decided to do this series on local church leadership. We want to clarify God's design and purposes for church government so that we can understand what it means for us to live together. Right to love each other and to fulfill the various roles that the Lord has for us to fulfill, whether you're a leader in the church or not. We want to think carefully about the impact that our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, our words have on the church, and they do. Whether you're an elder or a deacon or a member or even a non-member, you have some impact some influence on the direction of those around you. You do not live in a vacuum. We also want to clarify these various roles and responsibilities so that we might grow in faithfulness and maturity to Christ because we think that this is necessary for us to do that. We hope that it will help us to identify leaders and for us all to embrace the responsibilities that we have one to another. But in this sermon in particular, it's my prayer that we would grow in trust and in appreciation for God's good design for the church to be led by a plurality of elders. I hope that what we can take away from this time, not just up here in our heads conceptually, but more so right here in our hearts, is that a faithful plurality of elders best leads the local church toward maturity in Christ. Right, that's what I'm going to try to communicate this morning. A faithful plurality of elders best leads the local church toward maturity in Christ. Now, if you are just joining in this series, uh, or, or maybe you missed a week here or there, uh, just let me bring you up to speed. Two weeks ago... Uh, I I sought to lay out the qualification of elders, and I wanted to answer three questions. I want to clarify what a church elder is, what qualifies a person for that position of elder, and what are we ultimately looking for in a church elder, okay? And then Caleb followed up that last week by going into greater depth on the responsibilities of a faithful elder, and he did that so that we can identify and assess and encourage and give thanks For the faithful elders that the Lord has given this church. And hopefully, you have, uh, in these two weeks, just been able to look upon our elders as individuals and, and find them faithful and trustworthy for the task of shepherding this flock. But now we need to go one step further in putting it all together. And not simply to just view them as individuals, like there's Kyle, and there's Caleb, and here's Chet over here. But to see the blessing that comes from bringing them together and seeing them as a plurality. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's one thing, you see, to trust them as individuals, but it's all the more comforting, it's all the more reassuring to see why God designed there to be a plurality of elders. It's a wonderful thing. And so to do this, to, to see this plurality of elders within each local church, I want to first give biblical evidence of a plurality of elders, and then second, I want to give ecclesial benefits of a plurality of elders. And I had to throw that word ecclesial in there to bring balance to my points, to make Brian Chapel happy, and the preaching lab guys will know what I'm talking about there. So we've got the biblical evidence of a plurality of elders, and then we have the ecclesial benefits of a plurality of elders, nice and uniform, yeah? So anyway, first, biblical evidence of a plurality of elders. Now, the idea of a plurality of elders doesn't actually start with a New Testament church that was established upon the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It actually, the concept began in the Old Testament. You see, Israel was a patriarchal society. And what that meant was the fathers or the oldest men in each of the families served as heads of the family. They served as representatives of the family on all matters, both civil and religious. They were responsible to care for, to provide for, to protect, to lead their families under the authority of God for the good, not just of the family, but of the entire nation. They were responsible, they, and they were held accountable for that. And in fact, when you read through the prophets, you see a lot of judgment being cast upon the elders because they have been unfaithful to do that very thing. If you need an example, read go home and read Ezekiel 34. And so the elders of the family were representative heads of all things familial, all things civic and all things religious. And so in Genesis, we start with the forefather, Abraham. Now, we could start with, with Adam, but that would be a longer conversation. We'll just start with our father, Abraham, because he had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, right? So let's all praise the Lord, okay? <laughs> can't, once you get going, you just can't stop, right? Uh, so Abraham was given this promise of God to, that he would be the father of many nations, and he begat Isaac. Isaac had both... Jacob and Esau, but, but the torch went to Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, 12 sons of Israel. Now, these 12 sons of Israel were made elders in their, for their families, and they were responsible to direct their families to God. But as these 12 tribes grew from generation to generation to generation to generation, numerically, it became impossible for one man to do it. So as, as kids had grew up and had other kids and so on, more and more and more of the older men would be brought in as, as elders of these individual tribes, right? And so um, that's what happens. And, and, and this is one of the good things about those boring genealogies that you read about in the Old Testament, that so-and-so beget so-and-so, and that beget, 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 you know how that goes, right? Uh, that's a good thing because what you're looking at are the elders of those tribes. So think about that, Okay. Even by the time you get to the book of Exodus then, right, you're moving away from Genesis into the book of Exodus, there were many, many elders for each of the 12 tribes of Israel and each of these elders were responsible for leading their families, their progeny to follow God. So if we think about it in a modern day context, like in my family, I am the elder of my home and I have four sons But when my four sons grow up, now pay attention to this, Layden and Gabe, right? Because this falls on you. At that point that they start having kids, they start having sons, they would also be included in this eldership. And though I would be the head, eventually those responsibilities would be passed on from one generation to the next. And that that burden, that responsibility, and that privilege, that falls to these older men within that family. Now, when you get to the book of Exodus... By the time you get to the book of Exodus, the elders of the congregation actually have an active role in the religious observances of God's people. They were a part of the worship services. They were leading the people to worship God. In the book of Numbers and in Deuteronomy, elders were established as a judicial body. They were actually judging lawbreakers and executing judgments. By the time you get to the kings, you see that some of these elders are serving on a board of council for the kings themselves. And then particularly by the time you get to post-exile, you see the elders alongside the governor being the ruling bodies for Jewish communities. And so by the, time you get to the, uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, elders served as national, political, religious, and familial representatives and leaders. And so when you think about elders in the Old Testament, think about leaders in the family, in the kingdom, and in the temple or synagogue, okay? And that's what they're doing when you come to the life of Christ. And so when you come to Christ and, and his ministry... They, alongside the Pharisees and the scribes, were regularly rebuked and condemned by Christ because they were standing in opposition to him. They had him killed when they should have been the ones that recognized who he was and led the people of God to him. Okay? So they were extra accountable because they missed the point. Now... When Christ established the church, he changed a lot of things in the Old Testament that the Old Testament people of God were doing, including their offices, but he also redeems a lot of things. You see, there's continuity and there's discontinuity. We see in the New Testament that fathers are still to lead their homes. They're still the spiritual heads of their homes and they were going to be held responsible for leading their families to God. Now, certain things are thrown off, right? Like we we no longer understand the people of God as a theocracy, as some earthly, political, and geographical nation that worships God in temples or in synagogues. But within the church, which is described as the family of God, the citizenship of God's kingdom, and the very temple of God, we see the Christ-established elders, to lead and to guide, to shepherd and to serve, to sacrifice, to care for, to protect and to feed his flock. They are to teach the church and direct the church to worship Christ in spirit and in truth. And so, though there are differences, significant differences between the office of elder in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is certainly overlap. And the New Testament elders fulfill their responsibilities in continuation with the Old Testament model through a plurality. It's easy to see plurality in the Old Testament and it's easy to see it in the New Testament. Now, where do you see this plurality in the New Testament? Now, here is where it might actually be helpful for you to have a pew Bible in front of you, okay? We're gonna look at a lot of passages really quickly and because I love you, I put them all up on the screen and they have page numbers, so might want to grab a pew Bible, okay? We're going to start in the book of Acts. There's a lot here in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, the elders of the church in Antioch, elders plural in the church of Antioch, singular, receive word that a famine is coming. And so because they love the brotherhood, they love Christians, not just you know, their own little collective, but, but more broadly, they took up a collection to send aid to the brothers who are living in Judea. And so Acts chapter 11 verse 30 says that they, that is the church in Antioch, under the direction of their lead elders, did so, sending this gift to the elders, plural. Where are those elders? Well, verse 27 tells us they were in Jerusalem. These are the elders in Jerusalem, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. In Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 3, it says, now there were in the church, singular At Antioch, prophets and teachers. Now, given what we've already learned about elders, how elders teach, okay? I I think it's better to assume that these are elders. And and that's supported by the fact that Acts 11.30 calls them elders. So it's safe to assume that they're elders. Now, notice the names here. Acts 13, verse 1. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, the member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, otherwise known as Paul. She got Barnabas and Paul, okay? And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here what we see happening is that we have five elders of the church in Antioch who commission and send off two of their elders, Barnabas and Paul, to take the gospel to the region of Galatia as missionaries. And they do that. They go out. They're gone for months. And they travel sort of in this, this C-shape, right, uh, throughout the, the region of Galatia to these different cities. They're making disciples. They're gathering them together. And on their way back, just a few months later, they're stopping in each of the same cities that they originally traveled in. And chapter 14, verse 23 says, And when they had appointed elders... Plural for them, that is, these churches in these cities, in every church singular, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And at that point, Paul and Barnabas returned back to Antioch, the church that had sent them, to report how things had been going. In Acts 15, we're not going to take time to look at the whole thing because we'd have to read the whole chapter. But what was happening here is that a dissension rose up in the church between Jews and Gentiles because some of the Jews were teaching that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to faithfully follow Christ. And so the elders in the church of Antioch, according to verse 2, sent some of their delegates, some of the elders and maybe other representatives, to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to settle the matter. So we've got elders from Antioch going to the elders and apostles who were in Jerusalem to settle this matter. And they came, together they came to a biblical consensus for the good of the whole church, both Jew and Gentile. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. In verse 17, what's happening here is Paul, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in the town of Miletus and he calls the elders plural, from the church, singular, in Ephesus, and he charges them to faithfully shepherd the flock, singular, to which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers, plural. One flock, one church in Ephesus, many overseers slash elders, okay? But the book of Acts is not the only place where we see a plurality of elders. we got another list, so there we go. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he especially, specifically greets the overseers and deacons of the church at Philippi. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, there Paul says, let the elders, plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially or I think better understood even more so because they labor in preaching and teaching. I don't think that Paul is trying to talk about a different uh, disparity in offices between a teaching elder and a ruling elder. I think what he's saying is, look, honor elders if they rule well, but give them double honor because they preach and teach well. I don't see a a parody or division between ruling elder and teaching elder because again, two weeks ago we learned that the one unique qualification of an elder is the ability to teach. Another example of a plurality of elders is Titus chapter 1 verse 5 where Paul commands Titus to appoint elders plural in every single town. But this is not just Paul's idea either. Okay, James chapter five, verse 14. This is James, brother of Jesus, an elder in the church in Jerusalem, one of the elders in the church of Jerusalem. And he writes, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And Peter, first Peter chapter five, verses one through five says, so I exhort the elders, plural, among you, and that's the churches throughout the regions of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And, and and Peter the Apostle says, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But there are also other terms that describe a plurality of leaders in the church. There's one final list, four more. Okay, Paul urges the, church, the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers... You know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. In Ephesians chapter four, verses one through eleven, Paul reminds the church in Ephesus that Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, to do what? To equip the saints. That's all the congregation. To the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until when, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the the knowledge of God, uh, Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about maturity there. He doesn't want us to be children any longer, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather as we've all learned how to speak the truth in love to each other, we all grow up together. We're all built up together. When each part, every single one of us is working properly, we build one another up in love. That's what's supposed to be happening the elders lead in that equipping so that the church can grow to maturity together, right? The Thessalonians, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then one final passage only because I'm not even going to wade into the book of Revelation to tell you what I think the the elders in Revelation are. Okay, I love you, so you're welcome, right? Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7, 17, and 24. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Boy, this sounds a lot like what, what... Paul was saying of elders, right? In verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then there in verse 24, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. And in each of these three cases, the author refers to a plurality of leaders. And friends, we've run through a whole lot really, really quickly. But I hope that you can see from all of these passages that the Bible overwhelmingly affirms that God intends for the church, singular, to be governed by a plurality of elders. The only exceptions that you can even argue from are 2 John and 3 John, where the apostle John calls himself the elder. And again, he's not arguing for church form of government. And then some people try to argue from 1 Timothy 5.19 about what do you do when you find an elder in sin? How do you go about holding that man accountable? Well, again, it's not arguing against a plurality of elders. It's just saying, look, if if one elder's in sin, you don't punish the whole body. You actually deal with that person. And this is how to go about doing that. So again, that, that doesn't argue against a plurality of elders. Now, let me just clarify one thing really, really quickly. When I say that the governed, that the elders govern the church, I mean that the congregation is to be elder led, not elder ruled. Okay? Yes, the elders have been given a measure of authority. Yes, they are gifts of Christ to the church. Yes, the congregation is to obey and submit to them when they are faithfully following Christ, but elders do not lead in opposition to the congregation. They do not domineer over those in whom charge they hold, and they are most certainly not to lead in opposition to Christ, because the church has one head. It has one ruler. It has one king, and that is Christ. Christ. He is the ultimate shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so elders have a mediated or derivative authority, an authority to lead the congregation to Christ in a way that models his authority and his truth and his servant-hearted sacrifice. Our authority is to lead the whole congregation to him. And when they're doing that, when elders are faithfully doing that, the congregation is to follow. But the ultimate authority and responsibility, as we see in a, we will see in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, belongs to the congregation. You see, we are all held responsible for the direction that this church takes. The elders especially, but all of us are held responsible. And so God designed there to be a plurality of leadership within each and every local church. And as these elders faithfully follow Christ, we the congregation are called to honor and to be subject and to obey and to submit and to respect and to love and to be equipped by and to esteem them highly and to imitate them as they imitate Christ. So that's the what. That's the biblical evidence of a plurality of elders, but so what, right? Now we've got to get to the why. And so this is why we need the second second point here. I want us to consider the ecclesial benefits of a plurality of elders. Now that word ecclesial, just a big fancy word that means pertaining to the church. What are the benefits to the church of having a plurality of elders? What are the benefits for you, the congregation? And what are the benefits for me as one of the elders, and there certainly are many. I'm just going to address four, okay? First of all, it provides accountability. A plurality of elders helps to protect a pastor from error and from pride. Elders or pastors, they often possess a lot of authority in churches But in general, they have very, very little accountability. And no one really knows how to keep them in check appropriately. And this can quickly go to a pastor's head. If no one is holding him accountable, then it's really easy for for him to be, if he's the primary teacher, who's to argue against him, especially if he hasn't done a good job of training others up to be competent with the word. It's basically his way, his say. And what he says is taken to be right. And so the church can easily move off into doctrinal error or or they might abuse their authority to serve their own selfish interests. If I'm the one making all of the decisions and you have no say whatsoever and it's a single elder form of government, then I can do whatever I want. You just take it or leave it. But a plurality of elders helps to keep the doctrine and the teaching of the church tight and consistent with the word of God. It actually makes us better teachers And it provides a brotherhood of men who can come alongside to help each other when we find ourselves in sin and in error, right? Somebody that's not just kind of passing judgment on you, oh, you're wrong, get out of here stupid, but somebody who said, you know what, I love you, brother, and and you're, you're missing this aspect in your life, and let me walk with you in this to help you to grow to maturity and godliness. Let's do this together. You see, it fosters correction, it fosters restoration, it reduces that judgmentalism and helps to foster maturity and godliness among the leaders as they're constantly encouraging one another and and setting godly examples for one another and challenging one another, exhorting one another to love and good deeds. And what it ends up doing is it raises the bar, raises the bar, raises the bar. When we have elders who are younger or maybe less experienced, those who are more experienced can help them for this task of shepherding. And so it's not like, you know, in Kyle's situation, Kyle's not leading all by himself. Caleb and I are with him to help him. And we help one another, we make one another better. We are living out Proverbs 27, verse 17. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And this accountability is a benefit for you, the congregation, as well, because it provides a better sounding board for you to address the concerns and critiques that you have and facilitate change while diffusing congregational criticism, right? There are more ears to hear what it is you're saying and to come alongside you and to help facilitate that change, but yet it is able to remove some of the negative and unfair criticisms that the church might give. And in in a single elder form of government, and I've seen this so many times, the pastor takes the brunt of all complaints, right, of all criticisms. He faces just every grievance Every trial, every challenge, it's all pointed back to him and he's constantly being put in check. And if he doesn't respond promptly enough, if he doesn't give the people what they want, you know what they do? They gang up on him and they kick him out. And I've seen this happen so many times where people on power trips come around and they, they're divisive and they're dissenters and they gather people to share their so interests. and they gain enough of a support that they can call this man into question and he has no option but to leave. But a plurality of elders protects all of that. It improves communication between the elders and the congregation, the congregation to the elders. It seeks clarification. It helps us to work together for change without leading to backbiting or power grabbing. And if there's a good ratio of non-paid elders to paid elders, and if if the, the elders are faithful to be good shepherds who smell like sheep because they live lives with you, they're developing relationships of trust, right? Then it diffuses that us versus them mentality that so often destroys churches. Friends, that's something to check even within your own heart. How have you been sort of harboring that within yourselves? And so the first benefit of a plurality of elders is that it provides the church with a biblical form of accountability for its leadership. Second, a plurality of elders provides balance. In in our government, we like a system of checks and balances. Well, a plurality of elders provides that necessary checks and balances. All people have strengths and all people have weaknesses no one is perfect. And one elder cannot possibly do everything that is required in order to shepherd well. He has blind spots. He has sin in his life. He can't possibly do everything. He may be a great preacher, but perhaps he's a horrible administrator. And this other guy over here, he may be a wonderful counselor, but he's not much of a visionary. Bringing a plurality of elders together brings balance, right? And it's foolish for us because no one can be all things to all people right? And it's foolish of us to expect that of our leaders. Chet is supposed to do everything. So-and-so is supposed to do everything. Why isn't he doing this according to my standard? Well, well, I, I don't want Caleb to do that. I don't want Kyle to do that. I want Chet to do that. You see what I'm saying? Caleb, Kyle, and I, we all have different strengths. We all have different passions. We all have different demeanors. We all have different ways of communicating. We all have different gifts, and we all have different abilities. We also have different weaknesses and different sin struggles. And friends, that is a good thing. That is a good thing because not only are we holding one another accountable in that, but we can compensate for each other, right? They can reach you in ways that I cannot, And I can shepherd you in ways that they cannot. And that is a good, good thing. It's a benefit to you. The church is better off for it. In a plurality of elders, we are able to focus and to highlight and magnify one another's strengths while at the same time compensating for each other's weaknesses. We are better together. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. This balance of a plurality of elders also adds pastoral wisdom. I can't even tell you, as as an elder, we face a number of difficult issues and decisions. And it's hard to discern what is the appropriate course of action. Even if you know what needs to be done, the way to go about it, the way to communicate it, and to do all of that is very, very complex to figure out. And so we... Having a plurality of elders makes us wiser. It helps us to make better decisions and fewer stupid mistakes, at least hopefully, that we are not perfect. Also, a plurality of elders gives balance, and then it requires us to practice humility. Because if you have a plurality, you're not always going to agree. You're going to be told no, right? Right? And for the sake of the body, for the good of the church, there are times where you have to defer, where you have to say, that's okay. right? We'll do it that way. A plurality of elders allows us to do that. It causes us to depend upon Christ more and to humble ourselves before God and before each other. A third benefit, and this one is especially serving to me, <laughs> at least I think of it that way, is that a plurality of elders lightens the workload. We get to share in the burdens of the church. Now, being an elder is a weighty, weighty task. You are held responsible for the direction and for the maturity of the entire congregation. Guys, that is overwhelming to know that you're judged based upon that fact. And then when you look at what it actually takes to help the church to reach maturity in Christ and how far you have to go, I do this far too often, it is overwhelming. How can one man possibly be gifted enough or have enough time, enough energy, enough ability to help this whole church, even at the size that it is, to reach maturity in Christ? That is impossible. It takes many. Take for example, I was just just marriage, right? We're all young, right? Many of you have recently, or have, or are getting married. You know, I can make a full time job out of simply preaching on Sunday morning and do marriage counseling, and that's it. Nothing else. When I do premarital counseling, and when we all do premarital counseling, when I meet with a couple, I meet with them for about 30 hours total. That's an average. It's probably more than that if I actually figured prep time and things like that. If couples have more issues, I meet with them more than that. But it's at least 30 hours. Think about all the marriages and just the issues that we run into and how we need help working through different issues. I can tell you, a full-time job out of just preaching on Sunday and doing marriage counseling. Forget about any administration. Forget about any leadership training. Forget about any discipleship or evangelism or any type of other counseling or vision casting or networking or possibly helping out other churches or leaders or missionaries or teaching in other capacities. Forget about trying to get all of the stuff in order for this building over here because that ain't gonna happen. Foundation courses ain't gonna happen. Preaching lab? Are you kidding me? It's not going to happen. Just that. And even as we train up other people to share in that responsibility of, of doing premarital counseling or marriage counseling alone, I mean that's that's enough. We're trying to share that responsibility, share that privilege, share that burden. But even at a church this size, we need help. I need help. I depend upon community group leaders to really embrace the task that they've been given and to do it well. I depend upon guys that have gone through the internship and and guys that have gone through the preaching lab to help bear this mantle of responsibility to serve as leaders in this church. I depend upon all the members of this church to faithfully disciple our children up in Redeemer Tots or Redeemer Kids to do that well and to embrace that for the good of the gospel. And I especially need and depend upon Caleb and Kyle to bear this responsibility with me because I can't do it alone. Now, let me just say, I am so thankful for the fruit that we are seeing in this area. We are better because we share this burden of responsibility, because we share this mantle of leadership. We are so much better than if I tried to do it all. We're far more mature as a congregation. The church doesn't just reflect my strengths and my weaknesses, but it magnifies the strengths and serves to mortify the weaknesses of all its leadership as we together seek to fulfill all of the shepherding needs of this one congregation. And the more that we embrace that, the more that we do that together, the more we are intentional to to really prepare ourselves and to engage and to go get it, the better the church is. The more we are served, the closer to maturity in Christ that we become. By sharing the workload, it actually frees us up to train other leaders, which allows us to multiply ministry, not just within this church body itself, but actually outside it for other churches. And we've seen that. 16 months of filling the pulpit at First Baptist Church Leroy. That happened because we were freed up, because of shared leadership, by sharing the workload, to be able to train other guys up so that they can go out and serve other people and be a blessing to them. And praise God for that. And also, if something bad happens, like to me or to one of us uh, other leaders here in the church or maybe a leader in another church, these people that we're training up can step in and carry on the ministry. Sure, it won't look the same. Sure, it'll be different, but it won't come to a grinding halt because everything fell upon one person's shoulders. Also, sharing in this shepherding burden allows us to actually practice church discipline and to protect the witness of this church. You know, part of the reason why you may have grown up and never seen church discipline take place is because you grew up in a church where there was a single elder or perhaps some distant hierarchical structure. In a single elder form of government, everything falls to that one guy. And if he doesn't walk that narrow line just so, how can he hold anyone in account if they don't like one thing that he says, his job is on the line. So church discipline doesn't happen there. If it's an outside hierarchy, like an Episcopalian form of government, right? All of the decisions are made out there by some distant board. They can't possibly be involved in the life of the church to know what's taking place. And so how can they hold that person accountable? They don't even know who that person is. So church discipline doesn't happen. But having a plurality of elders within a local church body allows us to know the body really well and to develop relationships with each other and, and we can all can see what's happening and deal with it appropriately. Church discipline doesn't happen because, so often because people have moved away from a plurality of elders in a local church. But together we can share in that difficult burden of carrying out what Jonathan Lehman calls the surprising offense of God's love. And a fourth benefit of a faithful plurality of elders is that it provides a better picture of the church and a better image of God. Contrary to our celebrity-loving culture, the church is ruled by Christ and by Christ alone. Single elder congregations or this notion of a celebrity pastor makes the church about a single elder and it begins to bear his image rather than Christ's. But in a plurality of elders where they're actually faithful, all elders are eldering one another as they elder the congregation and are faithfully teaching and leading. It keeps the focus on the true head, on Jesus Christ, and reminds us that the church follows Christ. It doesn't follow Chet or Caleb or Kyle or John Piper or Mark Driscoll or John MacArthur or Peter or Paul or Apollos. We follow Christ and him alone. He is the chief shepherd, and we the elders are his under-shepherds. He is the good shepherd, and we all are his sheep. But not only does it better picture the church, a plurality of elders better images God. Is the God of the universe who rules and reigns over all things, who has authority over all things, is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. All equal, all powerful, all having authority, all operating in complete unity. And though we, the elders, are sinful men who are prone to error, together we more clearly display God in whose image we were created to bear than we could possibly do apart. Together, we better display his image, his authority in community, in plurality. Together, we make the gospel visible. And so friends, I want you to understand, God knew what he was doing when he established the church and its offices. Christ knew what he was doing when he entrusted his ministry not to one, but to 12 apostles. The apostles knew what they were doing when they established a plurality of elders in every single local church. Friends, I want you to understand God is sovereign, God is good. And God is wise. He designed the church to be led this way. To be led by a plurality of elders for our good. To protect us to provide for us to lead us and to guide us towards maturity in Christ to be better shepherds for our souls than we could possibly be for ourselves to be better shepherds for our souls than one single man or one distant board could ever be a plurality of elders who know us and love us and lay down their lives to proclaim the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ to us for our good in each every local location. It is good. It is right. This is the way that he intended it to operate. This task of shepherding the flock to maturity of Christ cannot be accomplished by one man or one distant board. But in a plurality of elders, we get a whole lot closer. Now, I know that many of you have stories. I know that many of you have backgrounds. And, and I think quite a few of us could all tell stories of some way in which we were hurt by a leader or the leadership of a church. I'm sure we could all just sit around and, and, and make note of that. And if that's the case, let me just say I'm sorry. And if, if I'm part of that, then I'm most certainly sorry. But God is calling you back to trust in his wisdom, to trust in his good design for you. Not to put your faith in men, but to put your faith in Christ. The accountability, the balance, the shared leadership and the imagery of a plurality is God's way of showing you it's okay. I care for you. I'm looking out for you. I have your best intentions in mind. But you know what? We do too. Six years ago when I moved here, I didn't have to start the church this way. I didn't have to. It would have been much more convenient. It would have been easier for me, more gratifying for me because I could get my way to just start it and run the whole thing myself. But I didn't do it. I didn't do it because I saw and I understood the beauty of the church being led by a plurality of elders. I did it because I knew my sin, because I knew my weaknesses, because I knew my limitations, because I knew I needed help. I knew that I might hurt you and I don't want to. And I need help to bring about Restoration and reconciliation. And when I can't be for you by myself, I pray that we, the elders, can be together. I did it because of the wisdom and the goodness of God in designing a plurality. Friends, I want you to know that we, the elders, love you. And we are committed to to your maturity in Christ. You know, when we have to say hard things or tell you what you don't want to hear, we don't take any joy in that. The only joy we take is in knowing that it's for your good and that we're trusting Christ who is our joy. Now, we we say these things not because we don't love you, but exactly because we do. I want you to understand that we are willing to spend and to be spent for your souls. And if you question that, I ask you, hear our words and examine our lives. Do you see commitment and sacrifice for the cause of Christ? You know those promises Promises that Kyle made last week are promises that we all make to you. And we make to Christ to devote ourselves to the gospel. We want to proclaim the good news that despite our selfishness and our distrust and our rebellion and our unbelief, the one true and holy God of the universe sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to do what you and I could never, ever do, to live a life of perfect obedience and to lay down that life by dying on a cross for sin. He rose three days later so that we might have new life in him, life that is freed from the power and penalty of sin, a life that is now restored to fellowship with God and fellowship to one another, lives that can be lived for his glory, not just in eternity like some way off thing, but right here and right now for his glory and for our good. If we would only humble ourselves and repent of our sin. And trust him. And though he ascended into heaven. We know that one day he will return. But in the meantime. We have his word. We have the Holy Spirit. Who enlivens us. Who convicts us of sin. Who dwells within our hearts. Leading us to holiness. Assuring us of Christ's pardon. And he gave us the church. Led by a plurality of elders. Because he knows exactly what we need. And despite all of the hardships and afflictions, despite the conflicts and all of that, he intended this for our good, this plurality of elders to shepherd us, to feed us, to guide us, to love us, to serve us, to provide and protect us, so that we all, elders included, might grow to maturity in Christ together. Friends, let me just assure you that we are committed to that. I know that Caleb and Kyle are committed to that. And I am committed to that. One of my life verses is actually a verse that we read earlier. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Where it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I am toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. We want nothing more and nothing less than for us all to reach maturity in Christ. And so we're asking you to trust us. And if that's still too hard, we're asking you to trust God's wisdom and his good design for a plurality of leadership within this church. Because to not trust God's design for us is to not trust God. Friends, he loves you and he knows what he is doing. Let's he, he's working, in spite of the hardships and difficulties, in spite of the, the tensions and conflicts, to work all things together for good. And so let's practice humility and prudence and deference and patience and love. Let's honor and respect and esteem one another highly because of Christ. Let us submit let us obey because God's will is better than our own. Friends, let's give thanks to God for the good and wise design for the church because a faithful plurality of elders best leads the local church to maturity in Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us Without a plan or purpose in mind, that is for our good. That in every mundane and seemingly normal and insignificant moment of our lives, in every relationship, you have purposed for our good to bring glory to your name, to change our hearts so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and to help us all find our joy in him. God, I thank you for the wisdom and how you created the church to operate and to function. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to it, that we would delight in it, that we would embrace the responsibilities that each of us has been given to help this church to grow to maturity in Christ. God, help us to be patient and to love, to seek reconciliation to quiet our own hearts, to not prefer ourselves, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing all things will be added to us. Not because of what we do, but because of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.